Lord our God, we are about to touch your word. Your holy and inspired and beautiful word. We pray that you give unto us hearts that, that stand in awe of, of the wonder that you have spoken to us in such a way. May you give us minds that, that concentrate upon your word. May you give clarity of speech and of thought as we consider the, the applications of your word. Guide us throughout this portion of our service. Christ's name alone we do pray. Turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 13, the last chapter of Hebrews. We'll read only the first six verses. In your few Bibles, that's page 1,286. 1,286. Hebrews 13 deals with really the application of all that comes before. Hear now God's word. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May the Lord himself add his blessings to it. Christian loving. Like I said before the reading of the word, this really is an application of, of all that comes before as, as the author to the book of Hebrews is, is bringing it all to bear. He began the book by, by pointing us to the reality that God has, has from all history spoken to his people in, in sundry ways, in diverse manners, uh, throughout the ages, throughout the prophets, throughout all of Scripture, throughout the giving of His Word, throughout even creation, He has spoken to us. But now, in these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. And then throughout the following 12 chapters of, of Hebrews, he, he develops the ways in which the Son is the fulfillment of everything that has gone before the Son is the fulfillment of, of all of the temple worship. He is the fulfillment of all the prophecies uh, recorded for us in Scripture. He is the fulfillment of all the types of shadows that we see from beginning to end. They all come to their pinnacle, to the apex, in the person of Christ Jesus. And throughout those 12 chapters, he shows us how the blood of bulls and goats, as we, even as we read from, from Psalm 50 earlier in the service, the, the blood of bulls and goats is not redeeming to us. It pointed us to our need for a Savior, that our blood must be shed, but it could not redeem. But then highlights and emphasizes that the blood of Christ Jesus is sufficient. It does redeem, and it has purchased for him 
the salvation of all his saints. The confidence that we, his children, his church, enjoy is only because our Lord, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, came down, was humiliated, was born, was made one of us, lived a life that we would not live and, and no longer can, suffered the penalty that we earned for ourselves upon the curse of his cross, was raised, was ascended, and is our first fruits. This glorious, what I believe to be a sermon that is, is set before us, and now we come to the end. And what does this mean to you, brothers and sisters? What does it mean to us as those who have this glorious gift set before us, this redemption that was purchased for us? It cannot leave us unaffected. It cannot leave us as we used to be. We don't obey the law in order to be saved. That's been made crystal clear. But because we're saved, we are called to obedience. And because we're saved, we're called to let lover, brotherly love continue. This is the fifth time I preach this week. Sorry if I stumble over words. Let brotherly love continue. So I'd like to consider these just six verses under three headings. Christian hospitality. Christian sympathy and Christian contentment. The application of all the wonders of God's gift and how it shall change us. Christian hospitality. Brotherly love, as the text tells us. What's in view here of this brotherly love is, is really two things seem to be in view. The, remember the context of the early church, a church that was uh, in transition uh, the Jews, which this Hebrews, this epistle of Hebrews was written primarily to the Jews who were converted, who were now called Christians. They were being accused by their Jewish brethren who were not converted, who were still living according to the old ways, who were Jewish by ethnicity, were accusing these Christian Jews of, of neglecting them. You've changed. You, you no longer love the brethren. You, you're unpatriotic. You're not faithful to ethnic Israel. The apostles reminding them, don't let this charge stand. Don't give credence for the charge of, of neglecting them, of being hateful of them, of, of turning your back on your brethren. God's grace and God's providence, I should say. Tomorrow we have the, the great opportunity as a nation to celebrate Memorial Day. A day when we remember those American soldiers who have given their life for the defense of our country. It's not a Christian holiday, but it is a good reason for us, who are American citizens, to give thanks, to express our appreciation, to to express brotherly love for the sacrifice of many others. Let your brotherly love be expressed even here in this life as those who are faithful and, and thankful to live in a nation where we have 
many freedoms, we have opportunities, we have, we have rights that are not available everywhere. In one sense, these early Jewish Christians were reminded that they are still a part of a people. And they still have opportunities and obligations to express fraternal love to one another. But that's only a small aspect of what's going on here. Of course, the greater aspect of this is the brotherly love of brothers and sisters in Christ. Here you have the, the Jewish Christians coming in contact with the Gentile Christians, and, and, and they're being all being reminded that, that we are one in Christ and that we have mutual obligations towards one another. We can't segregate ourselves over into this group of Jewish Christians, this group of Gentile Christians, this group of RCUS Christians, this group of URC Christians, and all of these other little fragments, but to be certain to express brotherly love between one another. I'm thankful for the close relationship. I use URC and RCUS. I'm very thankful for the close relationship that we have. I'm able to sit on a, a board that is largely composed of, of URC men for Shepherd's Way Counseling Center. Uh, we had Reform Mission Services host F in, at our congregation in Minnow. Uh, it's good that we have these expressions, these tangible expressions of, of brotherly love. And not only between these two denominations, but but NAPARC and ICRC and these other opportunities where the church can express her love towards one another by working cooperatively as brothers and sisters in Christ. But it gets right down to the pew as well. That we are being encouraged, be careful, to look out for our brothers and sisters in Christ and to not be factious, not to divide ourselves and, and, and refuse to be cooperative, to pray for one another and in every way reflect that we are indeed a part of one body. We're part of one household, that household of faith. And the author here is reminding us to let brotherly love continue. And of course, that final word of the sentence says a lot. Continue. That assumes that we have brotherly love to begin with. Very often when there are divisions in a church, uh, you get hard feelings that will last for generations. As an example in Menno, South Dakota, town of 600, we have six churches. Three of them call themselves Reformed. All of them originated in the congregation that I serve, but there's been a faction here and a faction there. And, and pretty soon, families from generations ago are harboring hard feelings and we don't even remember why. Because we are refusing this imperative right here. To let brotherly love continue. Or really in many cases we go generations fighting against brotherly love so that we never really have Obviously, this assumes that we already practice some form of brotherly love between brothers and sisters in Christ. But the second half of that word continue is an exhortation to 
be active, diligent, in striving to make sure that we don't let pettiness and, and neg neglect of one another drive wedges between brothers and sisters in Christ. What, what, what is called to be the family of God, don't let the insignificant things. We have to fight for the truth. We can't compromise there. But to let the insignificant things, the national identities, the hereditary background, uh, the, the town that we live in, these little things get in the way of brotherly love. Let it continue throughout the church. Maintaining true love for the brethren is far from a simple encouragement. It is indeed an imperative. As one commentator said, he who does not love the children of God is not himself a child of God. And that cuts right to the quick. Because I confess that far too often I fall into the same trap of, of, of pettiness. But as the Lord tells us in 1 John chapter 4, this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Some of us are very prickly. Some of us brothers are very prickly. Maybe a couple of but we're called to overcome that. To look beyond that. To cover it with love, to use other biblical language when possible. To confront when it has to be confronted. So as to maintain brotherly love. The author goes on as he considers Christian hospitality and says, don't forget to entertain strangers. So the brotherly love really is, is those that we know, but then on the other hand, there are brothers and sisters who we do not know, who we may have opportunity to, to come into contact with one-on-one, -on -one, and we certainly have opportunity to uphold in prayer, even in concept, if we don't know them in person. Very often in the early church, there would be those who, who were suffering greatly for their faith, and, and perhaps they would come into your neighborhood uh, because they were driven away from where they, they had grown up. They may have lost their wealth, their livelihood, even their family and friends because of their faith. And, and God and his providence has brought them within your sphere of influence. The author has said, don't neglect them. They're strangers. Don't forget to entertain them. In this context of this epistle, the early church was reminded of the dire need our brethren often have for the brotherly love and hospitality of fellow believers. Sometimes it was the primary means by which God provided for his persecuted church. Other times there would be those who traveling evangelists who would come into town, who would be spreading the gospel. Take care of them. Provide for their needs. Give them lodging. Provide their food. Be a source of encouragement to them. Of course, this Christian hospitality is a blessing not only for the one being shown hospitality, but I would argue it is even more of a blessing for the one who is showing hospitality. The text speaks of entertaining angels. 
it's almost certainly a direct allusion to both Abraham and Lot and, and their respective circumstances where, where they did indeed entertain angels and showed hospitality to angels and were thereby blessed in it. Undoubtedly, there were other instances, many which, which may not have even been recorded in Scripture, that of, of angels being shown hospitality by the saints and, and thereby being blessed, even if they didn't know it at the time. And yes, angels are still there. They are still God's messengers. They still do exist, though we may not necessarily expect to see them at our dining room table as they primarily are shown throughout history to, to appear as those messengers at great changes of, of epoch. And so we saw the multitude when Christ was born. But in serving, whether or not angels are at the table, we are certainly blessed. Consider the many stories of being blessed as we've opened up our homes to those who are coming in. I, in the RCUF, we, I'm sure you do too, uh, you have synod, you have classes, oftentimes in small towns. That's a great opportunity for small towns like Menno and Dune to, to be able to show hospitality to, to those who are coming into town who, who you may not know, but uh, they're serving the church, and, and we can get blessed, be blessed in that. I know in our local context, uh, I've had to go to the funerals of many, many pastors from our denomination uh, as a, a representative of classes and synod. And every time I do that, I have members of our congregation say, I remember when he was in town for Synod back in 1973, and he stayed in our house. We had such a wonderful time. And sometimes they'll even remember what they ate, and what some of the stories they told were that made that much of an impact to be able to entertain strangers who then became friends by this hospitality and made an impact for decades. I remember when I was in seminary in Greenville, South Carolina. Poor as church mine. But we were given the, the blessed opportunity to, to uh, host Christian brothers, uh, actually Christian sisters as well, from, from around the world. From Wales, you know, I'm thinking off the top of my head, from Wales, from England, from Ireland, from Haiti, from India, Australia, Austria, Brazil, Albania, Switzerland. I'm sure there were many more. Many of these people I will never meet again in this life. Many of them only came into our dining room table one time, and, and then they went back to wherever they go. But we remember them fondly. My children will always love playing Chinese checkers. Why? Because one Sunday afternoon, Two Haitian missionaries sat at our dining room table and taught them how to play it. And they still talk to it. You remember when Octavius taught us to play that? Yeah, yeah. Don't forget to entertain strangers. The blessing that we receive by being a blessing to those whom God has put in our path. Christian hospitality. What a great blessing we give up when we're too busy too self-centered, to anything else. 
to take the time to entertain those whom the Lord has entertained. Secondly, we see Christian sympathy. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourself are in the body also. My mind went to Romans 12 as I considered this third verse of our text. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Remember the prisoners. Once again, in our context, there were many who, who not only lost everything, but were even thrown in, in prison for their faith. And, and that may well be primarily what the author is speaking of here. They, they were being faithful to God and, and so imprisoned. And, and the author is saying, don't forget them. Minister to their needs. Paul himself was frequently thrown in prison and, and Throughout Scripture, we see him giving thanks to, to Timothy and to others and Onesimus who came to his aid and provided for his needs. And, and what a comfort that was to him. We think of Joseph in, in Genesis and, and how he was thrown into prison for being faithful because he, he stood up for what was right and refused to act in an immoral manner with Potiphar's wife. says, don't forget them. It's easy, sadly, for us to get all caught up in our day-to-day -day life and not see those who are in prison or those who are mistreated. We probably don't have anyone or many anyway in the United States who are in prison for being a Present for their faith. Though we have many brothers and sisters who are in prison, perhaps they're guilty of another crime, perhaps unfairly convicted. It doesn't matter. Perhaps they were converted while they're in prison. Don't forget them. Remember them. Care for them. And those who are mistreated, look out for their good, for their well being. Why? Essentially because the text says us, tells us their circumstances could change very quickly. Since you yourselves are in the body also. Life is easy for most of us in a relative sense. Sometimes there are health issues, sometimes there are financial issues. Sometimes there are relational issues. But overall, life is, is pretty good for us in the United States of America, in South Dakota, in Iowa. But we're reminded here that things can change very quickly. Because you want the Christian sympathy of brothers and sisters when you are in time of trial, the author is saying, look out for those who are in trial now. I was mentioning in the consistory room how I do have a deep love for this congregation for one reason in particular, and that was because coming out of surgery a few years ago, when I had a tumor removed, one of your elders drove all the way to Minnow and made a pastoral visit, and I'll never forget that. 
He showed Christian sympathy, not to someone who was being mistreated, but to some, someone who was enduring a trial. You yourselves are in the body also. Your circumstances can change in quick order. So many ways our paths have been made easy by our gracious God, but many of our brethren have been brought down paths of sorrow, down paths of abuse, down paths of need throughout the world. The author is instructing the church to help where she can, because this could just as easily be us. But by the grace of God, as the saying goes, it could be us. Our circumstances can change Overnight. This not just out of selfish ambition, of course. It can't be. That's the motivation that's set before us that, that remember, you're not immune to this also, but it reflects who God is. Because He did remember us who were prisoners of our own sin. We were in bondage to death. He remembered us. And he was gracious to us. Even in the garden, after the first sin, we have the, the first giving of the gospel that, that the, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. He sent his son to bring us out of darkness and to deliver us into his glorious light, as he tells us in 1 Peter. He has done it for us. And so when we remember the prisoners as if we're chained with them, when we remember those who are mistreated, we remember that we're called to imitate our God who is so gracious to us and is so gracious to us and shall be so gracious to us. How can we do anything different? Thirdly and finally, Christian contentment. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. And let your conduct be without covetousness. Can we be content in our relational status? If marriage is honorable above all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Again, there were at least two errors which were being addressed here. The first, that was prevalent in the early church, and, and especially in the pagan culture, but it infiltrated, thoughts had infiltrated into the church. One was that all physical relations are inherently sinful. And marriage was the second best. If, if you can't manage to be single, then I guess it's okay to be married. No. No, marriage isn't what you do if that is all you can, if you can't control yourself. Marriage is honorable. The bed is undefiled. There is something pure about the marriage relation. God created Adam and Eve. Eve from the rib of Adam before there was sin, is not something that resulted from sin, but it precedes sin. Marriage is part of the created order. It is 
as our text read, tells us, undefiled and honorable. The second error which is being addressed here is, is more of a pharisaical error. And, and, and in this we, we see some of, of the most legalistic who, who want to have their cake and eat it too, parsing scripture, particularly the seventh commandment and saying, thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, adultery only involves married people. So as long as we're not married, we're okay. And, and they tried to justify their fornication in this way that, hey, we're not married, so it's, it's not a problem. The officer, no. The bed is undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Today also, the worldview behind these false teachings is still alive and well. You may call them false piety and hedonism. But the result is the same, and God says, I had the blessed opportunity to marry a young couple in our congregation yesterday. It's a beautiful thing. It's honorable. But the marriage bed is reserved for the marriage vows. In commending marriage, he continues to give strict warnings about those who live a life of fornication. We're warned that God will judge. Psalm 50, I found it very interesting as he speaks about many of these same sins. It's, and you thought in him that I didn't see, that I was like you. I'm supreme. I'm sovereign. I'm far above you. And I will judge. Time and time again in Scripture, we see how seriously God views any attack upon the created order for husband and wife. Because, of course, the marriage bed, the marriage relationship, is a reflection of how God has given Himself for you, His church. It speaks of who God is. When we defile that, we're lying about God. We're blaspheming God's name. We're saying something about God that is not true. Can we be content in our marriages? Can we be content in the God-glorifying relationship? Can we be content in the place wherein God has placed us? Whether it's single or adult or single again, can we be content? We see finally content in our temporal circumstances. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be satisfied with what the Lord has given you. Your neighbor might have more. Your neighbor might have, have better property or a prettier wife or more children or better health or anything like that. For the Lord has placed you precisely where He placed you and, and, and given you the, the circumstances that He has given you because that is what is best for you. That is how He is preparing you, how, how He's preparing me for life eternal with Him. Can we be satisfied in how God is caring for us without looking over our shoulders? 
Why is he that more? Let your conduct be without covetousness. Deal honorably, straightforwardly, and honestly with your neighbor. Be content with such things as you have. With what God has given you. For our good. Divinity expresses there's a reason for this contentment. Quotes from Joshua in Deuteronomy. Because he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Can I be content in what God has given me? The reason that I can be content, should be content, is because we belong to a God who will not leave us. He will not leave us to our devices. He will not lose us. Our Lord Himself said, My sheep hear My voice, and I have lost none of them. I will never leave Him nor forsake Him. That's comfort. That's confidence. We need not fret. And really, that's what is at root of all, all covetousness, isn't it? And lack of contentment it is not being satisfied with having enough, but we have God. What more could we ask if we have a God who will not forsake us? When the reality of that sets in, we understand something of the implications of our security and belonging to Him. Then the author concludes, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Quotation from our call to worship this evening from Psalm 118. I'm secure because God is there. I will not fear because God is providing for me. All the enemies that I have, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they can circle around me as, as they circled around David. But I am secure here. You have made a table before me in the presence of mine enemies as we read in the 23rd Psalm. What a beautiful picture. I'm sitting here for dinner with a sumptuous table set before me of all the blessings of God's providence as my neighbors, as my enemies are circling around me. And I'm secure right here because God is my refuge and strength. He is my good shepherd. He leads me beside the still waters. Or Psalm 18, 18, I will not fear. I don't have to worry about these enemies around me because I have God for them. Our Heidelberg Catechism really summarizes that well. Lord's Day 10. We can be patient in adversity. We can be thankful in prosperity. And with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature can separate us from His love. Romans 8. Their life, nor death, nor things present, nor things to come, nor principalities, nor any other thing can separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus my Lord. When we realize that security, that confidence, that everything that we enjoy in God is ours, then we have no option but to be content, to be overwhelmed really with the blessings.
Christian life. How we are to live a life of gratitude, thankfulness to God for all that he has given us in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you have kept us, you have guided us, you have shown us the beauties of your word. We pray that not only today, but throughout the week, you would remind us by the work of your Holy Spirit of the blessed standing that we enjoy. Change us and equip us to reflect you and your love and your hospitality to those who are around us. Make us as living sacrifices to you. All this we pray in Christ's name. Our song of application will be hymn number two or 520 from the Trinity Psalter hymnal, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. We'll stand for saying number 520. Receive now the Lord's parting blessing and his benediction. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, 
through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.